0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England.
2: Max Wallace is a Canadian journalist, filmmaker, filmmaker, human rights activist and the author of five books. His most recent work, After the Miracle, The Political Crusades of Helen Keller, offers a new perspective on an individual who remains an international icon nearly 150 years after her birth. Whereas previous biographers have concentrated on the sentimental story of Helen's struggles as a deaf, blind and mute child... Portraying her teacher, Annie Sullivan, as a miracle worker and so relegating Helen to a secondary character in her own story, Max focuses on Helen's achievements as an adult. Using previously untapped research material, After the miracle, strips away the traditional view of Helen Keller as a secular saint, revealing an astonishing but altogether human figure who was a fervent advocate for racial justice... Socialism and disability rights. And whose greatest accomplishment was not learning to speak, but what she did with her voice once she found it. Before Max joins us from his home in Toronto, here's a clip of Christine Lakin narrating After the Miracle: The Political Crusades of Helen Keller.
0: She was among the most celebrated women of her generation. Newspapers and magazines throughout the world heralded the accomplishments of the remarkable girl who, afflicted by a terrible disease as an infant, was said to have been trapped in a void of darkness and despair before an extraordinary teacher single-handedly accomplished the impossible, taught the girl to communicate by spelling into her hand. Soon she was reading and writing and, before long, had even mastered philosophy, history, literature, and mathematics, After the world's most famous writer publicized her story, she was inundated with letters from around the globe, thanking her for humanizing people with disabilities. Until then, many assumed that people with her condition, deaf, dumb, and blind, were barely human. Now, celebrities flocked to meet her, and children everywhere knew her name. But this was not Helen Keller. A half century before Helen came along, there was Laura Bridgman. And before Helen's teacher, Annie Sullivan, there was Samuel Gridley Howe. Bridgman and Howe are now mostly forgotten. But without their achievements, Helen's miracle would never have happened.
2: Max Wallace, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you. Great to be here. As we've just heard from that clip, you start not with Helen Keller, but with Laura Bridgman and Samuel Gridley Howe. And you argue that their legacy was vital to Helen Keller's story. For anybody who doesn't know about Laura Bridgman and Howe, could you just briefly outline their story and why it is so vital?
3: Well, Laura Bridgman was a uh, a lot of parallels between Laura and, and Helen. She had a unknown condition which uh, caused her to become deafblind. This is the uh, 1830s, and at that point, the idea of a deafblind person being educated was unheard of. They were sent to asylums, they were considered completely uneducable, and then Samuel Gridley Howe, who founded uh, the Perkins School for the Blind in Massachusetts, decided that he would use Laura, he heard her story, uh, that he would use her as an experiment, he believed he could educate a deafblind person. This would be the ultimate challenge, so he uh, he secured the parent's permission, brought her to the Perkins School, and spent many years teaching her first the manual alphabet. So that that plays a crucial role in Helen Keller's story. Very simple: the manual alphabet, or finger spelling. It's sometimes called spelling into the hand, and it it wasn't particularly revolutionary but nobody had ever tried it before and suddenly she could communicate and from there it was fairly simple to to educate her and the story spread charles dickens wrote about it on his first trip to the united states he dedicated a chapter he visited the perkins school wrote about laura suddenly she's a household name not just in the united states but around the world people are very taken by by this idea an inspirational story it was always called of Overcoming Adversity. So suddenly, Laura's a household name. Now she's mostly forgotten, uh, and eventually she'd be replaced
2: in the public imagination by Helen Keller, but her story is pretty important. And somewhat crucially, Laura Bridgman was still alive when Annie Sullivan, who was Helen Keller's teacher, attended the Perkins School. They met... You suggest that finger spelling is something that Annie picked up through meeting her, and Annie herself was partially sighted and ended up being the Perkins School star student, which is why she was sent along to teach Helen Keller when Helen's parents approached. Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, for help with their deaf, blind, and mute daughter. Right, so
3: these these figures all play a very important role in Helen's story, and this, of course, is all taking place still in the 19th century. Helen's born in 1880 Alabama, and Annie Sullivan arrives in uh, Tuscumbia, Alabama to teach her in 1887. Helen's still only six years old. So
2: this is where the the story really picks up. For anybody who is not familiar with the Miracle Worker film or Helen Keller's autobiography, could you describe the miracle as it is related, The, the, the major breakthrough in young Helen Keller's life?
3: The major breakthrough involves... Annie Sullivan, for the first few weeks after she arrives, she's completely unable to control this wild beast, she calls her. Helen is uh, prone to temper tantrums. She's never been able to really communicate with her family. And then Annie shows up using the techniques that have been pioneered by Samuel Gridley Howe with Laura Bridgman. She teaches her finger spelling, And so the, the miracle, as it's related by Helen later on, is uh, one day Annie... Runs her hand uh, under a water spout, a water pump, and spells water into her hand. And suddenly it's a revelation to Helen and she can communicate. Miracle. And so Annie plays a large role later on at trumpeting her achievements. So she becomes the miracle worker. And unfortunately, Helen then starts to play a secondary role in her own story. So there's a lot of mythology around the role of Annie. She was clearly a skilled teacher and she was very important to to Helen. Helen called it her soul's awakening. And she completely credits uh Annie Sullivan with the miracle. And yet the evidence shows that Helen was very much a prodigy. I mean, fingerspelling wasn't very difficult. And that seems to be Annie's major accomplishment is teaching her this technique that was already well known and fairly easy to pick up. And so then Helen goes to Radcliffe, the uh, sister university, the women's college associated with Harvard, and becomes the first deafblind person to graduate from university. So this, you know, really takes the story to a new level. Look at what a deafblind person has accomplished. This is truly a miracle. Later on, I guess today, most people are familiar with the story more from the film, The Miracle Worker, the 1962 film with Anne Bancroft, than by reading Helen's autobiography, The Story of My Life. And by the time I was in school, that's really all I knew. I think we we were required to read The Story of My Life in uh, elementary school. And, you know, like millions of people. Uh, that's where I got my knowledge of Helen Keller, this miraculous, deaf-blind girl who was taught to communicate thanks to a miraculous teacher. And that's really all I knew before I embarked on this project.
2: We'll come on to discuss some of the background to the mythologization of Helen Keller later in the interview. But the moniker Miracle Worker applied to Annie Sullivan was coined by Mark Twain, And it's striking how, just as Laura Bridgman was trumpeted as, I think Dickens called her, one of the two great phenomena of the United States next to Niagara Falls, so it was that Mark Twain helped create the celebrity that surrounded Helen Keller. And there was both a friendship there and a sympathy for those who suffered injustice and cruelty, which you trace back to both Helen Keller and Mark Twain being children of the Confederate South.
3: Right, both their families' own slaves, and that plays a very significant role in the political awakening of both uh, Mark Twain and Helen Keller. They had this incredible friendship, Ellen talks about how uh, when she first met Mark Twain when she was 14 years old, she immediately took to him. And she loved the smell of profanity and tobacco on his <laughs> lips. And, and so there's stories like this about, you know, M- Mark Twain was the most famous humorist of his generation. And so there were a lot of anecdotes about their friendly, humorous banter. Uh, but what rarely gets discussed is their discussions on matters more serious. They, they talked a lot about war and colonialism, and racism. And this seems to have had a profound influence
2: on uh, Helen's later political awakening. And arguably by 1901, Helen Keller is the most famous woman in the Western world, and she is not shy of using that celebrity to push her views on social justice, and her first forays into political activism are on behalf of blind people. Why blind people rather than deaf people, do you think? That's one of those great mysteries,
3: because she was deaf and blind, and and even Alexander Graham Bell, who was her uh, mentor, who, as you mentioned, introduced her to the Perkins School and he had always been associated with teaching the deaf community. Both his wife and mother were deaf, and he invented the telephone to to help them better communicate. Uh so it it's a little bit of a mystery why Helen chose to advocate for most of her life for, for the blind community rather than the deaf community. But uh it, it also seems to have been expected of her. She even before she became a socialist. Uh, she was constantly asked to write articles, essays, about the blind community. You could see in some of her early letters, she was very frustrated by this. Uh, she wanted to talk about war and poverty, and people only wanted her to talk about you know overcoming adversity and so at some point she she 's appointed to a commission in Massachusetts to study conditions for the blind community. And she has an epiphany. She discovers that most blindness and disability in America are caused by unsafe work conditions in factories. So she's truly shocked. And she starts to blame blindness and disability on capitalism. And that's really her political epiphany, probably more
2: significant than the so-called miracle where Annie runs her hand out of the water pump and she starts to speak out against industrial blindness and social deafness and these might seem like rather ableist words to us with our modern ears but it's really effective it's great rhetoric and it captures the imagination of the press and of other social activists
3: it certainly captured the imagination of a lot of activists. Uh, the press, un- unfortunately, they didn't quite know what to make of her when she starts talking about these things. She had previously been, you know, heralded as this inspirational figure. And the public and the press couldn't get enough of her inspirational declarations. Once she comes out for socialism around 1909, the media are a bit unsure how to, how to cover this uh, <laughs> It, you know, it's still before the Russian Revolution, so socialism doesn't have quite the stigma as it would a little while later. But um, predictably, many uh, media outlets, newspapers, blamed her socialism on her disability. So the these same newspapers that you know had been begging her to write for them just a little while before, including the New York Times, suddenly they're they're talking about uh, how her. Her development has been stunted by her her condition, and she's furious. Needless <laughs> to say, nothing pissed her off more than than these ableist, condescending attacks. So she would go on the offensive, and and th- there's a reason Mark Twain was good friends with Helen Keller. She was very funny; she had a biting sense of humor, and suddenly she starts to write essays mocking the ableism of her critics. So this was clearly, you know, very heartfelt and very sincere. Even before she comes out as a socialist in 1909, you see um, writings where she's furious about poverty. She she believes that poverty is is society's greatest plague, and she calls poverty an abomination. And so once she discovers socialism, she realizes that that there is a a remedy for these social ills, racism and poverty that that bothered her so much. So, you know, her understanding of these conditions and her sense of injustice goes way back to childhood. But it's not till she discovers socialism that she believes
2: that there's something she can do about it. And it also leads her to embrace women's suffrage as a means to an end to achieve socialism.
3: Right. She discovered uh, mostly from England uh, in the uk, the the suffragette movement, Mrs. Pankhurst, especially, uh, were in, engaging in civil disobedience and confrontations with police and with uh, politicians. And Helen was quite inspired by that. She tells The New York Times that she's a militant suffragette for one reason because suffragism will lead to socialism and socialism is the ideal cause. and And some of her analysis is quite uh, forward. Uh, thinking as well. She, she writes a, a famous essay called Why Men Need Women's Suffrage, where she links the plight of the working class to the oppression of women. It, it's quite fascinating. You know, it's more than a century ago, she was uh, voicing these ideas and political concepts that really weren't embraced into the mainstream for decades and decades later
2: although she begins to believe that socialism is a little bit too much of a talking shop and she's moving more towards sort of radical action both from the sub- suffragettes but also from the IWW she is supportive of the general strike in the United States in 1915 and that actually she becomes rather an admirer of Lenin, and Bolshevism.
3: Right, even before the Russian Revolution, as you said, she was starting to believe that socialism, she called it too slow um, or too soft. And so she was uh, embracing a more radical socialism. Uh, There was a a very famous uh, strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts, the Lawrence Textile Strike in 1912, Uh, better known today as the Bread and Roses Strike, where the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, came in. They were still socialists, but more radical militant socialists, and used a variety of militant tactics to win their fight. And she started to realize that militant socialism, radical socialism, was the only way to transform society. It was not going to be transformed at the ballot box. That the only way to transform society and effect change was through revolution. So they had already begun to embrace a Marxist philosophy, and then the Russian Revolution happens, and it's a revelation. In 1917, she says, isn't the Re- Russian Revolution the great miracle? Helen never shed her admiration. She she believed that Lenin was the world's greatest figure. The Russian Revolution represented everything she had been working for. And so for for. Decades later, she's very um, supportive of Soviet-style socialism. She never actually calls herself a communist, but she she gives an interview at one point early on where she describes herself as a socialist and a Bolshevik. And then later on, she writes a second autobiography in 1929, which most people have never heard of, uh, called Midstream, where she talks about Lenin sowing the seeds for all mankind, and so it's, it's not a coincidence that the story of my life is still taught in schools today, but most people are uh, <laughs> unaware that she ever updated her autobiography.
2: But even at a time where other Bolsheviks are being rounded up, and certainly later when McCarthyism is seeking to root out reds under the beds, there's this sense that Helen Keller is just either too big or maybe just too disabled to be a target for the authorities who who want to silence her equally outspoken fellow travelers.
3: Yeah, she's just uh, too beloved. She's a household name. She's beloved by certainly American society, but also around the world. And just like the press didn't know what to make of her socialism early on, the authorities have, you know, realized that. They couldn't round her up. So she's speaking out against the preparedness movement in the United States. While the war was raging in Europe, the First World War, uh, it was clear that the drumbeats of war were, were happening in the U.S., but the U.S. only entered the war later on. And so she spends three years in the run-up to American intervention trying to warn the public. The authorities, President Wilson, you know, she's taking the socialist line. She certainly wasn't unique. She talked about how the war was being waged for the financiers for J.P. Morgan and that the working class were going to be the cannon fodder in the trenches. And so she she certainly proved to be prophetic. But once the United States entered the war, the U.S. authorities took the opportunity to round up all these dissidents and radicals that had been preaching against the war and She's untouched. You know, rounding up somebody like Helen Keller, a figure as beloved of Helen Keller, would not have been well-received by the public. So instead, she starts to uh, rail against this crackdown on dissent. And she becomes a, a co-founder in 1920 of the American Civil Liberties Union, which today is more of a liberal bastion of free speech. But back then, it was very much associated with the far left. It was, it was founded to, to free the thousands of political prisoners that have been rounded up for their outspoken anti-war activism or for their embrace of uh, the industrial workers of the world.
2: Now, we touched on it earlier, but she was a lifelong campaigner against racism. She used her position to speak out against the Jim Crow laws. And in the view of many of the social commentators at the time, that was her most controversial stance?
3: Well, it was certainly the most controversial in her native South. She sends a letter in 1915 to the fledgling NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, So just starting to, to launch as a prominent civil rights organization. She sends a $100 check, which was a lot of money back then, and a very poignant, passionate, letter of support where she declares that she's ashamed in her soul to be from the South and so her family still alive they're shocked the the local press in Alabama this is the Jim Crow South and here's this beloved very influential figure denouncing the South and Jim Crow and racial segregation and humanizing the, the Negroes as she calls them and they're, they're freaked out about this. Her mother is deeply ashamed of this. You know, she can't show her face in, in her own neighborhood. The neighbors are, are shocked. So there's a lot of pressure on Helen to, to walk back her remarks, which becomes a lifelong phenomenon where people around her exert this intense pressure on her to conform. So she does that. She walks back her remarks. And yet for decades afterwards, time and again, she embraced an anti-racist activism that was incredibly uncommon for a white person, uh, certainly a prominent white celebrity at the time. And, you know, it, it struck me as I was researching this book that ironically, she seemed to get more worked up about anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism than she did about uh, discrimination against people with disabilities. You know, the, the, the idea of disability civil rights wouldn't really emerge for decades later. And I can't say that Helen Keller was particularly admirable in her advocacy for disability civil rights. But Her disability activism was certainly important because she she linked these issues. She linked disability and capitalism and race, class, gender. What today in in academia, they they call that intersectionality. But back then, that was unheard of. And so I think a lot of that's been forgotten. Uh, Even in disability studies programs today, a lot of people think she's an anachronism but partly it, it goes back to one of her less admirable causes. Before the war, socialists, scientists, a lot of intellectuals embraced eugenics. The, the creation of a better race through breeding And you'd expect as a disability icon that she would strongly oppose eugenics. But um, she supports a doctor. A doctor lets a baby, the bulletin baby, die uh, because he has severe birth defects. And declares that he otherwise he would have become a criminal. And Helen writes an essay for a newspaper instead of condemning the doctor's decision, she supports it, and she comes out for a eugenic philosophy. It was, it's quite shocking today to to read this, but a lot of the eugenicists were outright racists. They they ended up sterilizing uh, black and indigenous women, but Helen never embraced that side of eugenics. That, darker side of eugenics. For her, it was all about overpopulation and poverty. She would tour the slums and see people with 12 families that couldn't support them. Children were dying. Mm. And so she believed that eugenics was a a remedy for that. Although her embrace of eugenics was very short-lived. This was just a few weeks in 1915 that she never talks about it again. She, She certainly doesn't renounce it. But later on, she emerges as a strong opponent. Once, once eugenics is discredited by the Nazis, she she takes on the Nazis' eugenic programs and, you know, places herself on the right side of history. So this is a very short-lived uh, phase. But unfortunately, it haunts her to this day. It partially tarnishes her legacy in academia and with some people in the disability community.
2: And as you say, I mean, she was a very early opponent of the Nazis, she's speaking out against them in 1933 when Hitler comes to power and her book is actually being burned in 1933 she's also very supportive of the anti-fascist cause in the Spanish Civil War at heart is always wanting to support those who are dispossessed and, and she compares herself to a, a Joan of Art figure and actually appears dressed as Joan of Arc in a film about herself called Deliverance.
3: Right, and she, throughout her life, she certainly uh, battled injustice, and yes, yeah, she, she compared herself to uh, Joan of Arc battling for humanity. But a lot of this has been downplayed or erased. That there's, there's a lot of documentaries and biographies that acknowledge her early socialism, and yet most of them claim that this was just a phase. She gets a job with the American Foundation for the Blind as a fundraiser in 1924. And she spends the rest of her life on the payroll of the AFB. And and once that happens, she stops talking about revolution. She stops condemning capitalism in her public speeches. So there's this idea, this myth has spread that, that she became mostly apolitical later in life. But That's it's simply not true. She no longer talks about revolution. But she, as as you said, she in 1933, Hitler comes to power and burns one of her books. She's one of only a few Americans whose book is burned by the Nazis in May 1933. And she immediately sits down at her typewriter and writes a very poignant letter to Hitler uh, saying you can burn my books, but you cannot burn ideas. Do mm. not believe that your barbarities to the Jews are unknown here. And and so, actually, his barbarities to the Jews were mostly unknown, but she speaks six languages, including German. So she's following the rise of the Nazis in real time, and she's horrified. And so for the rest of the decade, she devotes herself to anti-fascism. She supports the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the American Brigade, Uh, fighting fascism in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. And this is a communist front group. The international brigades were founded by the communist international. So it's interesting. Whereas the myth says that she became apolitical after she joined the AFB in 1924, the facts are that she actually moved to the left and she spent the rest of her life battling fascism, battling racism. She later on takes on Joe McCarthy during the 50s, during his uh, witch hunts. And, and again, she would have likely been called before the House on american Activities Committee and blacklisted, but she was still too, too beloved for that. So they mostly just ignored her. Um, later on, I, I discovered, uh, you know, I started out as an anti-apartheid activist. That was my political awakening mm. in the 80s, battling apartheid, battling to free Nelson Mandela. And so, you know, by that time, it had become a liberal cause celebre, a big deal. You know, everybody was against apartheid. And yet in the 50s, I discovered this incredible cache of correspondence uh, showing Helen Keller when the anti-apartheid movement was still very much associated with communism. Um, Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress, the executive of the ANC, are rounded up and put on trial for high treason under the Suppression of Communism Act. And they're facing the death penalty. Now, most South Africans had still not heard of Nelson Mandela in 1956. But Helen Keller discovers what has happened, and she agrees to raise money for, for their defense. And she issues a, a very strong statement about the poison of racism and oppression. You know, And this, this is a point where people around her, her employer, were trying to dial down her, her political activism. It, it, it was the height of the McCarthy era. They were terrified that their funding would dry up, and she was hired for fundraising. And and yet she sees what's happening in South Africa, and she immediately is horrified and wants to do something about it. And and this has never been publicized. No nobody's ever written about her anti-apartheid activism. I think a lot of people, you know, just picture her as this little girl in Alabama in the 1880s. And yet she dies in 1968. But even into the 60s, she's still very passionate about battling injustice wherever she finds it.
2: Yes, as you say, increasingly, the AFB and those around Helen Keller are propounding this narrative of her that centers around the miracle at the water pump. And focuses attention on her as a child and of the role of Annie Sullivan. And this is about to become set in stone as far as the public are concerned with the release of the 1962 Oscar-winning film The Miracle Worker, as we'll hear after the break.
1: Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844
2: Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with Max Wallace about his major new biography of Helen Keller, After the Miracle which focuses on the lesser-known side of her as a lifelong political and social activist. Now, Max, before the break, we were discussing how, by 1959, Helen had a rather curated image which sought to focus on her childhood and how she was taught to communicate by her inspirational teacher, Annie Sullivan – And this image was about to become set in stone in the public mind by the Oscar-winning film The Miracle Worker, which rather focused attention away from Helen's own achievements and onto those of Annie. And you trace this back as far as 1903 and the participation of a man called John Macy in Helen's first autobiography... The Story of My Life.
3: John Macy actually wrote much of The Story of My Life, even though it was uh, billed as a memoir. And uh, Helen later admitted that she didn't remember most of that early childhood. (laughs) So John Macy, who was enamored and would eventually marry Annie Sullivan, frames the story as a miracle perpetrated by, by Annie. He creates the narrative of the miracle worker, and downplays Helen's role, but the the facts show that Helen was very much a prodigy. She's teaching herself six languages, and she's you know certainly an incredible mind. And that's all downplayed. Even even the movie Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke won Academy Awards, uh, but Anne Bancroft, who played the the title role, the miracle worker, receives the Best Actress Oscar, and Patty Duke, who played Helen only got the best supporting actress. And, you know, it, it really it really shows how Helen had been relegated to a secondary character, even in her own story. And that's not an accident. That's certainly, uh, both Annie Sullivan and John Macy played a major role in that narrative.
2: And the woman who took over from Annie Sullivan, Polly Thompson, and also Annie Sullivan's biographer, Nella Henney, who was also instrumental in Helen's later life, also downplayed Helen's socialist firebrand credentials and encouraged this view of her as simply naive when she strayed into political debate.
3: There were so many characters playing a role in suppressing her natural firebrand tendencies, And, you know, even future biographers did this as well. Joseph Lasher, who wrote the definitive biography in 1980, uh, talks about her socialism. He was an early socialist, so he's sympathetic to that. But later he claims that she was apolitical. And when when discussion centers around her later anti-fascist activities and her membership in various communist front groups, he claims that she was duped by the communists. Mm. This becomes a part of the narrative as well. Right. So even when she's foolishly associating herself with communists, it's because she's been duped because of her disability and people swallow it up. Oh, of course, she's deafblind. What does she know? You know, it's, it's frustrating because it continues to this day. There was recently a documentary that really portrays her socialist years as a very important part of her life, but then almost dismisses the later stuff.
2: Uh, and and implies that it was just a phase. You give the light to this by mining her letters and her correspondence for evidence that, in many cases, she is far more widely read than those around her and those that she's arguing with. As you said earlier, she is fluent in six languages, including German and Esperanto. She's always reading, she's always writing, and the accusation that she's somebody else's dupe is totally given the lie by the evidence. It's
3: preposterous, especially since most of the people around her were very anti-socialist and anti-communist, and yet, you know, the public and the media just swallowed that narrative hook, line, and sinker.
2: Braille was absolutely essential to... Helen Keller's education. Annie Sullivan taught her it shortly after her seventh birthday, and Helen credits reading H.G. Wells as introducing her to socialism.
3: Yeah, it's still a little bit of a mystery why Helen embraces socialism in 1909. It's very clear that she's sympathetic to a lot of the socialist principles even before then. She's friends with a journalist named J. Chamberlain, who introduced her to some socialist texts when she was a teenager. Uh, yet she, she claimed that it was reading a H.G. Wells novel that was her epiphany. I'm a little skeptical of that, but certainly there were a lot of influences, including her friendship with Mark Twain. There were so many factors that, that clearly influenced uh, her, her political beliefs, but really you could trace it back to her discovery that the lack of workplace safety Uh, led to most disability and blindness in America. That was a a real wake-up call. And as soon as she discovers this, she starts to rail against capitalism and links capitalism to disability. So yes, she was reading a lot of authors, including Marx, uh, but, but clearly these strong beliefs predated that intellectual side of her
2: socialism. And throughout her life, she's getting braille newspapers from Germany and other European countries and, and educating herself. I, I found myself at times wondering where she got the time to do all the reading and all the writing, because she was a prolific writer of books and speeches and letters and also was making numerous public appearances throughout her life.
3: She would also tour the slums to discover for herself the conditions. She believed that poverty was an abomination, and she wanted to, to discover for herself what the conditions were like. She, she didn't content herself merely about reading about the social ills. She wanted to talk to uh, the people who were experiencing the, these horrible conditions. She had a lot of African-American friends, which was quite unusual for the time. And so, you know, that is in marked contrast to a lot of white liberals later on who spoke out against racism, but never actually socialized with any black people. And so there's so many influences. It's really hard to pinpoint. People have tried and you're supposed to, try to pinpoint this influence or this book, but it's, it's much more complex than that. Just an extraordinary figure with an extraordinary mind. And, you know, the idea that she read Braille and that she learned the manual alphabet both taught to her by Annie Sullivan, that's true, but that's not much different than a child attending school and learning to read when they're, you know, four or five years old. And then it's what they do with that afterwards, reading books and educating themselves. It's Almost irrelevant that she was deafblind, or that Annie Sullivan, you know, was this miracle worker that taught her these things. These were fairly easy. Anybody could learn Braille at that point, and anybody could have picked up fingerspelling the manual alphabet. And so, you know, once that happens, it's it's Helen that plays the biggest role. Um, mm. th- this has been downplayed, right? But she starts to read voraciously. She teaches herself a variety of languages. And and so it, it's certainly important that she had these disabilities. But one way or the other, it doesn't really account for any of her beliefs other than the link between disability and capitalism. Um, I'd say that, you know, a lot of her political beliefs just were from her sheer force of personality. Did that have something to do with her? disability? Maybe. She was, she certainly never seemed bitter about it. She just simply accepted it. You know, from, from her earliest memory, she was deafblind and disability certainly played a role in her activism. The media wanted her to talk about disability and overcoming disability, um, but she just wanted to improve conditions for everybody.
2: Now, you really capture that when you are talking about her appearances on the stage. She lived about four years in vaudeville, between nineteen twenty and twenty four, basically because she needed to pay the bills.
3: Absolutely, she you know it, it it was considered unseemly at the time. She goes on a vaudeville tour because she needs the money. She has a lot of expenses. She has to uh, support Annie Sullivan and Polly Thompson, who was a, another assistant that had been brought on. So she had these vast expenses and no income. So she she's lecturing on, on the lecture circuit, then she spends four years on vaudeville, where she puts on a, a somewhat mawkish presentation, give, giving the public what they wanted to hear about the miracle at the water pump, etc. But the real highlight was the question and answer session afterwards. The audience would get a chance to ask questions. And, and th- that's where her real personality came out. Uh, it was during Prohibition. In the United States, and somebody asks her, uh, what's the greatest problem facing America today? She's immediately, without missing a beat, she says, how to get a drink. And they say, <laughs> what came out of the First World War? And she says, the American Legion and a bunch of other troubles. So she combines this <laughs> biting wit with, with her political convictions. She calls Lenin the greatest man in the world. And uh, you know, a, a, as you could tell, I'm I'm quite captivated by her. I almost fell in love with with Helen, um, and and it goes beyond her political beliefs. You know, she, she loved uh, drinking and dirty jokes, and so you know that's something you do not associate with the beloved Helen Keller. But uh, time and time again, she surprises me, and and you know, goes far beyond her her political convictions, which, of course, I very much embrace myself.
2: Did you get any sense of what books she read for pleasure when she wasn't reading political tracks? I'm guessing a fun-loving woman like Helen Keller must have read some fiction.
3: I found a fascinating letter uh, from the 1930s where she had just finished reading Gone with the Wind, Uh, which was the best-selling book in the United States at the time. And she talks about how it brought back memories. It's set in the antebellum South, very similar to her own upbringing. Uh, she She talks about how it brought back memories of the South. But characteristically, she then adds that she's appalled at the treatment of the Negro, which is still a huge social problem today. So even when she was reading fiction for fun, she she couldn't help herself. So, she yeah, she loved to read novels and plays, but couldn't escape her lifelong passion for battling injustice.
2: Now, the 1930s were a time when the American Foundation for the Blind were pushing for funding for talking books, and initially... Helen Keller came out against them, saying that they were a luxury that blind people could do without for the time being. And you argue that this actually reveals a rather modern awareness of privilege on Helen Keller's behalf. Yeah, the
3: AFB was certainly influential in suppressing her political uh, beliefs time and again. But then there are numerous examples where she used her position at the AFB, to rail against uh, a privilege. At one point, her employer wanted her to uh, give a uh, congressional address before Congress advocating for tax breaks for blind people. And she adamantly refused. She said, that will only benefit a small percentage of affluent blind people. Most blind people don't pay income tax. I'm not going to waste my time on that. So she frequently pushed back at any Suggestion that she advocate for comfortable members of the blind and deaf community. Um, and instead, she ended up delivering a very strong uh, congressional deputation about achieving more funding for African-American blind people and, uh, and for the deafblind community. So she would turn the tables on the AFB and used her position you know, to achieve, even, even within the system, helping the most vulnerable members of society and of the disability community. I found that quite striking. Mm. She also, we, we talked about how um, for most of her life, she advocated for the blind community and it raised the question, why not the deaf community? At one point, I, I find a, a letter where she uh, confronts the director of the AFB, Robert Barnett, she says, Robert, I I simply must do something for the deaf. And he shoots her down. He says, that's not my job. So it's it's not that she was unaware of the deaf community. She clearly wanted to do something, but she was on the payroll of the American Foundation for the Blind. And I, I think her legacy is a little bit tarnished in the deaf community. She was associated with Alexander Graham Bell, who... Uh, waged war against American Sign Language. He was incredibly influential at suppressing ASL. Helen never used ASL. She seems to have um, embraced Alexander Graham Bell's eugenic stance that oralism is what's best for the deaf community. Um, He believed that ASL would cause deaf people to marry each other which would create a what he called a defective race. And, and so instead, he encouraged oralism. And Helen spent much of her life trying to talk, but she was never very successful. It was one of her greatest disappointments, she, she claimed, that uh, uh, she always wanted to talk, but pe- most people couldn't understand her except those close to her. So this, this is another legacy of the eugenics uh, attitudes that she grew up with not that there's anything wrong with uh, oralism, but uh, the war on American Sign Language is still a a problem
2: today. It's caused deep divisions within the disability community. As we've discussed over the, the, the past 45 minutes, her legacy is not a simple one, it's a mixed one. But if you had to sum up what her legacy is today in a couple of sentences, what would you say?
3: It's not easy to distill Helen's legacy in, in a couple of sentences. I think her legacy is still ongoing. Uh, this, and it's something I want to convey, the, the importance of looking at her, her life and, and work and the issues that she held dear and realizing that they're just as relevant today. You know, this isn't uh, an anachronistic 19th century figure as some prefer to think of her, but uh, the, the ideas that she held dear are still incredibly relevant. If she were around today, I could picture her, you know, railing against Donald Trump and the far right. I think the most common word that was always used to describe Helen Keller is inspirational, which has become something of a trite cliche. But for me, her her life story is very inspiring in a very different way. I think uh, more people should should follow her example. The inspirational nature of Helen Keller has nothing to do really with her disability. It was more the ideas that she crusaded for that are just as relevant today as they were a century ago.
2: All of us who are blind can access After the Miracle because it has been recorded as a terrific audio book by Christine Lakin. Did you select her specifically as a narrator? Was she somebody you'd come across yourself beforehand?
3: The publisher actually brought in eight different readers to audition, and I got to choose the one that I liked best, or the one that I thought would best uh, encapsulate the, the book. And I absolutely agree with you, Christine was uh, was the perfect candidate. So that was a lot of fun, uh, Here, a lot of pressure as well. Are
2: you a fan of audiobooks yourself?
3: I am a fan of audiobooks and, you know, for almost 15 years, I worked for AMI, writing audio description of movies and TV shows. And I'm not blind myself. I, I, I do have uh, a disability. I have severe Crohn's, Crohn's disease. But um, that that experience certainly helped me at least become a little more empathetic to the blind and visually impaired community. And so, you know, when I'm listening to the audiobook version of of my book or, or trying to select the ideal reader, I, I I try to imagine
2: how blind people will receive it. Well I'm wondering whether any of the three books of your life are going to be books that you've listened to as audiobooks. I'm guessing since we're fairly much of an age, when I ask you, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author won't be one of them. But what was that book?
3: There were a wide variety of books that influenced me, but I think the the book that really made me want to become an author was uh, reading Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I, I was probably a teenager at the time, and I realized that wow, writing writing could be a lot of fun. It's exciting. <laughs> um, I I started to read a lot of the Gonzo books, other Hunter S. Thompson, Tom Wolfe, Ken Kesey. And I thought writing would be fun. I no longer believe that. I think writing's a chore. And <laughs> you know, I wish I could write like Hunter S. Thompson. It's not really my my style, but uh but I I just loved it and I fell in love with uh both reading and writing as a result
2: of reading Hunter S. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread?
3: Well, a book that Yeah, that I frequently go back to that had a big influence was a relatively obscure Canadian book by an author named Jim Monroe called Flyboy Action Figure Comes With Gas Mask. It's about a uh, a student that realizes that he has the ability to fly and a waitress in a diner that can disappear. And they band together and they call themselves superheroes of social justice. And they tackle various uh, uh, social causes. And and so um, I always liked that idea of seeing myself as a superhero of social justice. Later on, the, the, there became this uh, disparaging term, uh, social justice warriors, that's, that's used sort of interchangeably with woke. So perhaps it's lost a little of
2: that appeal, but I still like to think of myself as a superhero for social justice. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? There is a
3: book, and it, it is, to answer your question, it's a book that I listen to on audio, and it's a figure named uh, Habin Germa. It, it's called Habin, the Deafblind Woman Who Conquered Harvard Law. Uh, Habin Gurma is an Ethiopian or Eritrean American uh, woman who, she's the first deafblind person to receive a law degree from Harvard Law School. And there's a lot of parallels with Helen Keller. And again, in neither in case, they're, they're, they're certainly not inspirational because they have disabilities and they overcame it. That's the cliche. Uh, no, w- with Haben Girma, she, she's this passionate crusader for social justice who's used her law degree to um, talk about refugee rights and racism and police brutality. And listening to it, you know, it's almost coincidence that both her and Helen Keller are deaf-blind. Uh, for me, she has that same sense of, of justice as Helen did. And the idea that she could use her new privilege as a Harvard-educated lawyer to combat that, that injustice, I, re- I recommend it highly.
2: Well, Max Wallace, thank you so much for introducing me both to a more politically active and a more fun-loving Helen Keller. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this afternoon.
3: Great chatting with you. Thanks for having me.
2: That's it for this edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Max Wallace, and to the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime... If you'd like to leaf through our back catalogue or drop us a line, here's how.
1: Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. I'm Margaret Shepherd of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS.
0: Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.